Hello, my friends. It's time for Greenwich, a town for all seasons. Ladies and gentlemen, wherever you are, I want to welcome you to the 17th of June, 2022 episode of the Greenwich to Town for All Seasons show podcast, hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham, me a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, long known as the Gateway to New England. As always, I am so glad you could join us for today's show. Founded on July 18th, 1640. The town of Greenwich, Connecticut is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. That includes its history. This weekly podcast show is dedicated to exploring one of America's most notable and dynamic communities, a special place that we call home. Now, whether your roots go back nearly 400 years uh, here as, as mine do, or even 400 seconds or somewhere in between. Whether you are here to stay or just passing through, we welcome you with open arms and we're glad that you have come here. You're part of our history, so congratulations. That's really great. All right, now the Greenwich to Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Mr. Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, the United States of America, and the Captain M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. On today's episode of the Greenwich of Town for All Seasons show podcast, you'll have ample opportunities to let your imagination and curiosity soar. I'll take you on another excursion into one of Greenwich, Connecticut's legendary estates, this one being Hilltop and its owners, Henry and Louisiane Havemeyer, thanks to the painstaking research provided to us by the Junior League of Greenwich. We'll continue our journey into Greenwich's history through Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard as he guided his readers in 1932 along the west side of Greenwich Avenue. Now, in Crimes and Misdemeanors, that's the segment of the show where we continue our observances of the founding of the Greenwich Police Department 125 years ago. I'll share news of daring burglaries in 1908 and how drunks were disposed of in 1914. Now, my friends, let me ask you a question. You know the Rockefeller name. It is synonymous with wealth and success and business acumen. Did you know that William Rockefeller, known at the time as one of the wealthiest men in the world a century ago, also lived in Greenwich? I'll have some details about that. Now, from the book... Uh, beyond uh, Greenwich 2000, sorry, we'll spend a few moments exploring what happened in the year 1927. Quote, it is quite a common occurrence, unquote, said an observer, quote, to meet a woman carrying a snapping French poodle tucked under her arm on her way up or down Greenwich Avenue, unquote. But as this one soul discovered, at least one Greenwich woman carried something else with her. What was the year? 1914. You're lucky, my friends. Greenwich, Connecticut seems to have more history than it knows what to do with. And we feature it here. <laughs> We're going to feature news of public events that you can enjoy. So sit back, relax, and get ready for lots of fun on today's episode of Greenwich, a town for all seasons. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience. 
coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. A special project of Site Design Associates and its principal landscape architect, Peter F. Alexander, the Greenwich, Connecticut-based Long Island Sound Institute consists of a community of professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned individuals progressively congruently working towards safeguarding Long Island Sound through research, historical perspective, and restoring ecological balance through management, policy, and education. The Long Island Sound Institute's aspiration is to promote modern planning and the implementation of the most up-to-date technologies available to conserve Long Island Sound for future generations. Long Island Sound Institute's studio is at 2 Greenwich Office Park West. To contact the Institute, email LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. That's LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. Or call area code 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. AMUSA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual ambassador museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. Its goal is to correct a stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. That's uh, that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-4604. Or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. Well, chartered in February 1959, the Junior League of Greenwich has played an impressive role in fostering valuable projects and services for the Greenwich, Connecticut community as no one has ever done before or since. Now, one of those projects years ago was the research and publication of a book that I strongly recommend to you. It's titled The Great Estates, Greenwich, Connecticut, 1880-1930. Now, a very good friend of mine who unfortunately is no longer with us, that would be the late town historian William E. Finch Jr., referred to this period of our history as, quote, 
the flowering of Greenwich, unquote, an age when the word Greenwich became synonymous for the word millionaire. Now, the Greatest States book is available to borrow from the Greenwich Library System. I believe that you can purchase copies from the Greenwich Historical Society's gift store, or you might even find it on your favorite online book vendor. Now, today I wanted to share with you uh, one of these great estates from the uh, the book. Um, the principal owner is a name very familiar to us in Greenwich, Connecticut. His name was Henry Osborne Havemeyer. Um, you've probably seen the Havemeyer Building, uh, Greenwich Avenue and Art Street. Well, there's that Havemeyer name there and also Havemeyer Lane and, um, and what have you. So without any further ado, uh, let's get started. The name of the estate, by the way, was Hilltop. Henry Osborne Havemeyer, who lived 1817 to 1907, is remembered today primarily for two reasons. First, for his career in the sugar business, for which he was called the Sugar King, and second, for his art collection, remarkable not only for its size and variety, but also for the quality of the objects included in it. These two facets of the man deserve attention, especially during the last 24 years of his life. This period began with his marriage in 1883 to Louisiana Waldron Elder, and she lived from 1855 to 1929. She was a most interesting woman. Louisiana's name was originally Louise, but as Henry Havemeyer had previously been married to her aunt, whose name also was Louise, she changed hers to Louisian in order to avoid, to avoid confusion. Well, that's clever. <laughs> um, Havemeyer adored his second wife, influenced greatly by her, especially where art was concerned. He provided her with virtually anything she wanted. At the time of their marriage, his father's sugar factory in Brooklyn, founded by his grandfather, a German immigrant, was prospering. He and his brother inherited, inherited it, along with several million dollars in 1891, and Henry's shrewdly brilliant operation of the business produced additional fortunes in the years that followed. He had been the chief factor in the, the organization of the American Sugar Refining Company as a trust, and in his successful campaign against the Art, art Buckles, whom he defeated for control of the sugar business, he displayed the energy and the resourcefulness that were considered to be typical of his career. His trust not only virtually monopolized the sugar industry for this country for many years, but was also in the forefront of most of the speculative movements in the New York stock market. For a time, it was commonly said on Wall Street that the market brought to the sugar trust as much profit as did the sale of sugar. Havemeyer combined his almost unlimited resources and aggressive nerve with his wife's lifelong love of art and her taste for objects not yet generally recognized as valuable or fashionable. The pair became a remarkable collecting team. The painter Mary Cassette was an intimate friend of Louisiana Havemeyer, and her perceptive advice added yet another invaluable ingredient to their activities. Neither of the Havemeyers bought without the other's approval, but Mr. Havemeyer often gave in to his wife's whims and enthusiasms. By 1889, they had begun to buy from the Impressionists, many of them friends of Miss Cassette. Their collecting passion spilled over into many other fields of art, and they bought Chinese porcelains and Persian lusterware, Phoenician glass, Japanese tea jars, Ming bronzes, Renaissance and Oriental sculpture, rare manuscripts and prints, ancient and modern, and starting about 1900, they began to find paintings of old masters. The resulting collection, which was left to the Metropolitan Museum of Art when Mrs. Havemeyer died, is one of the most magnificent donations ever made to a museum of art. By 1889, with both their family and their fortunes expanding, the Havemeyers engaged the architect 
Charles Haight to design a massive and daringly simple house at 1 East 66th Street in New York. It was conspicuously unlike its fancier neighbors on the outside, and for the interior and with the interiors done by the Tiffany Studios bore no resemblance to others in fashion at the time. In short, the Hefemeyers had the means, the courage, and the taste to be different. They enjoyed their original and extraordinary home in the city and the full social life that led there that they led there, but they were also fond of country life. The year after they were married, they decided to have a house in the country, specifically in Greenwich. Henry Hevemeyer bought Boss Tweed's house from Jeremiah Milbank and had it moved from its original site to what is now Temple Shalom's property on Putts Hill. He had the nearby cemetery belonging to Christ Church moved so that he would not have to have graves in his backyard. However, in the spring of 1888, a larger tract of land with a magnificent building site, so high that one could see Long Island Sound, came to his attention through a real estate agent. By the end of May, Havemeyer had bought 85 acres from the Seth Quintard estate, and by 1906 had acquired 118 more acres from seven other property owners. The land was in the Palmer Hill area, a short distance east of the Mianus River, mostly on the south side of Palmer Hill Road and primarily in Greenwich, though it did extend over the Stamford Line. Before any building could be done, the land had to be cleared. Sarah Morrow de Forest remembers that her father was hired as a gardener by Hevemeyer before there was, quote, even as much as a shingle to sleep under, unquote. According to her, the Peter Mitchell Company brought a crew of workmen who labored for months chopping trees with axes. They cleared the enormous areas which were to surround the house's lawns and built stone walls on some of the boundaries. The house which the Havemeyers constructed was a large three-story country home, built in the shingle style popular in the last two decades of the 19th century and associated with the Boston architectural firm of Peabody and Stearns. It had stone foundations, shingled sides, a multi-gabled roof, and six large stone chimneys. The sash windows and wooden shutters, which could be folded across the panes when necessary. To one side of the building was a long porch. At its end was a small conical-roofed conservatory with typical hip knob and finial. The porch, opened, the porch, open at first, was later glassed in with window panes and its stone walls became covered with ivy. The lines of the house were strong and simple, and the interior was also kept free of the opulence which characterized the Havemeyer's New York City house. Their grandson recalls unimposing furnishings, some bedroom furniture done by Tiffany, but in a manner, but in a simple manner, rattan furniture and Chinese urns with ferns in them on the porch, some of the curtains and floors stenciled by his grandmother. He also remembers that the dining room was decorated in 17th century Dutch style, Henry Havemeyer's favorite, with a tile floor and very dark paneling. It is clear that the house was completed in 1889, as there are existing records of all of the sheets, blankets, and kitchen inventory done by Louisian Havemeyer in 1890. The Greenwich Graphic reported in 1907 on, quote, the large and valuable property on Palmer's Hill, unquote, saying that the, quote, residence here is particularly fine and that the surroundings include all the elaborate features of a gentleman's extensive country estate, unquote. The gardener had three greenhouses at his disposal, one of which he called a grapery, where he grew white grapes and figs in big pots. He had three men working for him and won prizes at flower shows for his entries, roses, gardenias, and orchids. The superintendent's cottage and stable were both substantial stone and shingle structures. A coachman, whose duties included driving Hevemeyer to the Stamford Railroad Station every day, lived in quarters over the stable. A dairyman fed 
and milked the cows, and the supervisor's brother rode around throughout the summer with a horse and lawnmower cutting the grass. However, Louisian Havemeyer liked the simple country life for her husband, three children, and herself when they were at Hilltop. And there they were probably never more than three servants in the main house. She enjoyed, she enjoyed doing her own cooking and especially liked to bake, preferring a change of pace from their more formal city life to its full social calendar. Although when seeking a rest and a change, the Havemeyers also spent time at their 300-acre Long Island estate known as Maryvale. In fact, the family was there for Thanksgiving when Havemeyer died in 1907. They were warmly considered benefactors of the town of Greenwich. Henry Havemeyer paid $250,000 to build what was then known as the Greenwich School, now the Havemeyer Building, housing the Greenwich Board of Education, and presented it to the district. He gave $5,000 of the cost of the Sound Beach School and made large contributions toward the lot, the organ, the manse, and the mortgage of the First Presbyterian Church. He improved the road described in an 1892 issue of the Greenwich Graphic as, quote, the road over the hill and down toward Dumpling Pond past Old Orchard Mill. One of the good things is as much needed drinking, fountain by the roadside partway down the hill, unquote. This watering place for hot and thirsty horses remains today as part of the stone wall by the side of Palma Hill Road. In accordance with his wishes, Louisian Havemeyer and her children sold the three-cornered plot at Arch Street and Greenwich Avenue to the government for the site of the present post office, placed the purchase price in trust, and directed that the interest be used toward the upkeep of the school he had built. At the time of his death in 1907, the Greenwich News stated that, quote, the sincerest grief was felt in Greenwich as in other places where he had known. Mr. Havemeyer had been generous in his attitude toward the town and shown an interest in the community beyond the giving of money. He had won a place in the heart of Greenwichites, which will not be readily taken by anyone else. Unquote. After her husband died, Louisian Havemeyer continued to spend time at Hilltop, her favorite of all their homes. She loved to work with flowers, was especially fond of her rose gardens, and kept bees. A woman of great liveliness, she was never still for long. She was a fervent suffragist, an outstanding fighter for women's equality with men. She became one of America's most effective speakers for this cause, and in 1919 even went to jail in Washington, D.C., for setting fire to a portrait of President Woodrow Wilson during the demonstration. The estate remained the property of her three children for almost 20 years after her death in 1929. But by the time 195 acres of the original property were bought by Jean Tunney and Arthur Starch, the buildings were falling into disrepair. The house was torn down, and the land was developed into an area of single-family homes, which were sold for little more than the cost of returning World War II veterans. The Tavern Garden Markets at the Greenwich Historical Society are back, featuring a specially curated and alternating selection of locally grown and sourced products. Support local growers, producers, and artisans when you fill your basket and your home with the bounties of nature and unique handcrafted goods. Enjoy farm-to-table organic produce, fresh eggs, plants, and flowers. Savor the flavor of nutritious, prepared foods, fresh-baked breads, Fruit pies and donuts find the perfect gift among an array of vintage silver, jewelry, stationery, ceramics, and accessories. The Tavern Garden Markets of the Greenwich Historical Society are held on alternating Wednesdays in the lobby and tavern garden from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. Now let me let you in on a secret. Early birds are welcome at 9.30, but you didn't hear that from me. All right, well, <laughs> um, the Tavern uh, Garden Markets uh, for 
the month of June are June 15th and June 29th. Those are both Wednesdays. Um, the Tavern Garden Markets are sponsored by Yashmin Lloyds and Compass. You're in for a pleasant surprise at Coffee for Good. Located in the 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church, Coffee for Good has quickly emerged as one of Greenwich, Connecticut's top coffee houses. Its success is driven by a never-ending commitment to quality and inclusion. Coffee for Good shines as a unique nonprofit partnership between the Second Congregational Church and Abelis. It employs and trains people with disabilities through a self-sustaining platform so they can thrive in the community. The 1856 Solomon Mead House provides a 19th century style hip and unpretentious historical setting that evokes a setting filled with diverse people who are all inspired. Delightful staff, super friendly baristas, great coffee, pastries, and more. Coffee for Good provides free Wi-Fi, free parking, indoor and outdoor seating, with a relaxed local vibe that has become a popular study spot and destination for informal business meetings and gatherings. My friends, take it from me. The word about this gem has gotten around. Located in the historic 1856 Solomon Mead Italianate-styled stone mansion at 48 Maple Avenue in Greenwich, behind the Second Congregational Church, all part of the Putnam Hill Historic District and listed on the National Register of Historic Places, Coffee for Good is open daily, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m., except Sundays. You can learn more at coffeeforgood.org. Do you know what it means to have a vision of the future? A vision of a future situation uh, can be based on what someone imagines or hopes it will be like is, is actually something that is hardly new. People have been contemplating the future for um, as long as humanity has existed. But you know what? We have an example of someone who contemplated the future of Greenwich, Connecticut from the year 1896. <laughs> and uh, I wanted to share this with you. Thanks to a Greenwich graphic cover story article that was published on April 4th of that year. An, quote, ancient friend of one named Ezekiel Lemondale, we actually know him as uh, Judge Frederick Hubbard, related a dream of a time 28 years into the future of Greenwich, Connecticut. So I thought that maybe I would share this with you again. This is dated from the year 1896. And let's see. Oh, Ezekiel Lemondale's ancient friend dreams a dream and sees a vision. Centennial celebration of Lafayette's visit. My ancient friend came over to the Lennox last night at Mr. Parker's special request. It was silent all around the house. Outside, the fog was dense, and the horn on Captain's Island and the deep groans of benighted steamboats made the office with its cheerful log fire seem a safe retreat. My ancient friend was more pensive than usual. The night before, he had, quote, dreamed a dream and seen a vision, unquote, and the dear old soul told us all about it, and this is what he said, quote, In August 1824, General Lafayette visited this town, and some of us agreed that the centennial celebration of that occasion should, if possible, be duly observed. Of course, none of us expected to be present, but the committee of arrangements of which I was one promised that future generations should be impressed with the importance of such a celebration. I was talking with my grandson about it last night, and all the children became interested and were impatient for the approach of the day. In their eagerness, they forgot the span of 28 years and all the changes that time will bring. They were only anxious to weave the garlands and sing the songs and applaud the speakers. They forgot that childhood days for them would be over, and only as mature men and women would they, they would perform their part in the celebration. 
And when they had gone romping upstairs, I sat by the fire and dreamed of that August day to come, when no doubt Greenwich will do homage to the memory of the great general whose aid made our success sure in 1776. As I sat in the silent room, I dozed, and in my dreams I saw the grand procession march and countermarch through streets where now the wildflowers grow, and upon the houses were numbers and letter carriers were going in and out. Quote, what a throng up and down Greenwich Avenue, how these horseless carriages glided over the smooth street, even the old Amagerome truck responded to the touch of the electric button and held its course in the gay pageant. From Putnam Avenue and Field Point Road, south to the school, where streets and houses, a dense village with a outlook here and there one, and thereupon the sound. To the north, as far as Round Hill, every knoll was covered with an elegant country home. Electric Park and Far Beyond was improved and beautified by a hand of wealth and the skill of the architect. Houses halfway to Stanwich that were only an hour from Wall Street. Round Hill crowned with a great white hotel that greeted the vision for miles in every direction. A famous all-the-year-round inn at the corner of Millbank Avenue and Elm Street, where it now grow tangled, untrimmed apple trees. A great summer hotel on Rocky Neck Point with an outlook upon Round Island and Field Point, just as they are today. A trolley to Round Hill and another to Sandwich and electric engines on the consolidated road and fare by family tickets to New York 30 cents. A town population of 20,000 and a grand list of 12 millions. A village crowded, but all the outskirts are graceful picturesque and dignified, a residence town, beautiful for situation and without a peer, and complete and universal system of sewerage and not a factory. No more churches, but more schools and more ladies' homes or, or, or young ladies' college of every renown. Putnam Cemetery, no more in name, but the same noble hill, uh, in, with its walks and drives and plots, scrupulously kept from its main tenant's fund. The library, with every bookshelf filled, no longer obliged to struggle for subsistence from shows, suppers, and concerts, an institution fully endowed and, and of influence and power. The great school building, a high school, supported by the town and not alone by the district, and fitting the girls and boys for college. "'Do you believe all that?' said Mr. Parker. "'Certainly,' said the old man, "'for I have dreamed before.' In 1850 I dreamed of the war of the rebellion and all the preparations which Greenwich made to send her soldiers to the front. I saw the boys in their new uniforms gathered about the great town hall. I saw the great throng of friends and neighbors and dear ones who had come to say the last farewell. I saw Reverend Dr. Lindsley standing upon the stone wall of compliment uh, in front of the Second Congregational Church, his hoary head uncovered and his tremulous voice lifted in prayer. I saw the march through the dusty street to the depot, and I wondered which one was going never to return. I saw the moving train, the white hand handkerchiefs fluttering from the windows. Well, it's that time again in this show where we hear from the one and only Judge Frederick Augustus Hubbard, who was a prolific and gifted writer, lawyer, and storyteller here in the town of Greenwich in the latter years of the 19th century and into the early years of the 20th. He used the pseudonym Ezekiel Lemondale when writing about what he called Cracker Barrel stuff. His column, The Judge's Corner, was published in the Greenwich News. Now, we're very indebted to Frank Nicholson, who years ago collected Judge Hubbard's Greenwich News articles and published them in compendium form as 
Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard, selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson. That book, by the way, is available to you in the Greenwich Library system. I strongly recommend it. It's it's a wonderful read. It it really is, and uh, takes us back to a bygone uh, time in the um, history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. The column that I'm going to share with you today is column number 134, dated April 21st, 1932. The headline, The West Side of Greenwich Avenue, Fish Market and Ice Cream Salon, Lion Voris Trek, Disastrous Fire, Kidnapping Case of 1874, The Tragedy House. So without any further ado, let us begin. On the west side of Greenwich Avenue, south of what was described last week, came the property of Captain William L. Lyon. At the extreme north end, on a line with the sidewalk, John H. Barrett ran a fish market and ice cream saloon during Civil War days. John and his father were both fishermen, and much of their stock in trade, if not all of it, was the result of their personal efforts with rod and line, lobster traps, and clam hose. Ice cream was a new delicacy in those days, homemade with eggs and cream, and frozen in those early backbreaking freezers that required plenty of energy and patience. It was a summer product, rarely appearing in the winter months, and then only in families of wealth or in city hotels. But the ice cream saloon was quite remote from the fish counter, separated by a narrow hall. When, in 1889, the excavation was made for the Trust Company building at 96 Greenwich Avenue, many clamshells were dug up, giving a chance for a local archaeologist to discourse on the discovery of an Indian camp ground of centuries earlier. Many years before 1889, the John Merritt building had been moved across the street, and as Elias S. Peck's plumbing shop stood there until two or three years ago, when it gave way to the new medical building. Captain William L. Lyon was a retired shipmaster, of whom much has been said in this column. He was the first warden of the borough. He lived in what was later, and for many years, the home of John Voorhees standing on the site of the Pickwick Theatre. The land on the avenue was of little use to the captain, and on one occasion he offered it to Mr. Held for $1,800 and traded out in meat. Mr. Held later became quite an operator in real estate, but this opportunity to invest was declined. The picket fence that enclosed this tract from the street extending from the old Trust Company building, now the Wentworth Department Store, to the Greenwich Drug Store, will be recalled by many of our readers. It did not disappear until about 22 years ago, when Mr. Fortius bought it in the spring of 1868. It was an open space, and for many years later was used as a market garden by the late Willis T. Mead. South of the Lion Voorhees track and on the site of the Greenwich Drug Store at 130 Greenwich Avenue was the home of many years of George W. Hunt. He was one of our early commuters, being a bank teller in New York. The house was a modest affair and now stands on the south side of Lewis Street Extension. Mr. Hunt and his wife were devoted to flowers and their front yard, enclosed from the street by a white picket fence, was a riot of color in the summer season. He sold the place for $12,000 and was said to have invested it at the initial price in the stock of the old Standard Oil Trust, from which investment, if held, must have enriched his family. On the spot, John H. Ray built his famous carriage repository with customers for many miles around. Here the disastrous fire of September 1900 started, consuming the St. Mary's Church edifice and several nearby buildings. Restoring the church with the present-day stone evidence was not delayed 
but the other lots remained vacant for two or three years. Later, the present three brick buildings for stores and tenements were built, including the one overlooking the church property by Harry Eddy, and called the house of the Thousand Windows. In 1854, the land extending from the Hunt property to the home of George Sillick, torn down two or three years ago, was occupied by three houses, one of them at the north end with pillars in front. Here lived Mrs. Charlotte Rogers. One of the other houses in 1860 was occupied by Daniel Merritt Mead, the author of The First History of the Town, published in 1857. The other house was later... 1869, owned and operated by Silas D. Benson. Prior to 1866, Charles W. Knapp was the owner of the two acres, with one house which which he sold to Henry Held, which renders it probable that the other two houses were built by Mr. Held. His son Henry lived in one of the houses as owner, until February 1869, when he sold it to Silas Benson at an advance price of $12,500. The George Sillick House was built before the Civil War. It stood near the corner of what was afterwards the the West Elm Street. But for many years it was a dead-end driftway, affording an approach to William Henry Meade's carpenter shop, which occupied the site of Dr. Griswold's home. Later, the road was laid out across the Benedict land to the Field Point Road and was then accepted as the borough as a public highway and took the name it now bears, which is West Elm Street. In the year of the widening, all the land from West Elm Street to the Havemeyer School property was a part of the farm of Silas Merwin Mead. But in 1868, Joseph E. Russell, who lived on Greek Street, bought an acre for $4,000, Some uh, sold some um, in the rear, and built the large frame building with the dooryard stores south of the Trust Company building. That would be 240 Greenwich Avenue. He was a prominent man in town, and after his death, his son of the same name, was judge of probate for 10 years. On what is now the parking space on West Elm Street, Mr. Russell built a carpenter shop, which was later moved to the corner and remained there until the present. Trust Company building was erected. After it was moved to the corner, the old shop was devoted to many uses. In the early 70s, the basement was used as a local courtroom, and here in December 1874, was tried the famous Trumpy kidnapping case. For a time, two stores occupied the first floor with a half dozen steps to reach them. Upstairs were apartments, and at one time the basement was used for town meetings and again as a military drill room. Finally, the Greenwich Graphic made a press room of the basement, and the elder Mitchell converted the entire first floor into an antique and second-hand furniture store. The community rejoiced when, about 15 years ago, the new trust company building took its place. Below the Russell property, Merwin Mead built a house, afterwards moved back from the street and still in use. 47 years ago, it was called the Tragedy House, not because anything very startling happened in it, but because those who lived there in 1885 suffered a shock from which they never recovered. J. Augustus Johnson owned the house, his wife, his son, Barclay, daughter, Eleanor, and little Tristan, three years old, constituted the family. On that beautiful spring day, Barclay planned an outing at Indian Harbor for all the family. The nurse in charge of the baby refused to go. Did she suspect something beyond the usual? As the sun was setting that afternoon, three dead bodies were carried up the front steps of that mansard-roofed house. Barclay had shot his mother, his sister, and himself. The sorrowful memory of that fateful day remains only with a few, but often comes an inquiry 
concerning the three graves side by side in the cemetery of the Second Congregational Church. Quote, did they die in a railroad accident or were they drowned in a sea catastrophe? Only as an answer to such ones is this story told. And that from Frederick Hubbard, our eminent judge in the late 19th and early 20th centuries in Greenwich. He was the uh, columnist for the Greenwich News. And um, you can find his columns in compendium form in the Greenwich Library System uh, in the collection by Frank Nicholson called Greenwich History, The Judge's Corner, 150 Vintage Newspaper Columns by Frederick A. Hubbard. Selected, edited, and indexed by Frank Nicholson, it is one of my favorite books, and perhaps it will become yours too. Support is made possible by... Site Design Associates is an award-winning landscape architecture studio located in historic Greenwich, Connecticut, and founded in 1979 by its principal, Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect. Committed to a unique multidisciplinary approach to professional landscape design and development, Site Design Associates' ambition is to foster a sense of excellence that is second to none from analysis to construction and maintenance with 35 years of experience. Coupled with a sense of place, purpose, and history. Now, Peter F. Alexander is a member of the American Society of Landscape Architects. He's a graduate of the Rhode Island School of Design and a member of the American Planning Association. My friends, Peter F. Alexander and Site Design Associates is the title sponsor of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, and we are very grateful for the support that we receive. You can learn more at sitedesignassociates.com. You can call Peter F. Alexander at 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Or you can email him at peterA at sitedesignassociates.com. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor is Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. A special project of Site Design Associates and its principal landscape architect, Peter F. Alexander, the Greenwich, Connecticut-based Long Island Sound Institute consists of a community of professionals, researchers, academics, and concerned individuals progressively congruently working towards safeguarding Long Island Sound through research, historical perspective, and restoring ecological balance through management, policy, and education. The Long Island Sound Institute's aspiration is to promote modern planning and the implementation of the most up-to-date technologies available to conserve Long Island Sound for future generations. Long Island Sound Institute's studio is at 2 Greenwich Office Park West. To contact the Institute, email LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. That's LISIHI2023 at gmail.com. Or call area code 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. There are many ways to serve our country. A select number of individuals are nominated to serve as U.S. ambassadors in countries around the world. Their diplomatic assignments are vital to the U.S. maintaining peaceful and working relationships with global governments. The Ambassador Museum, United States of America, is based in Greenwich, Connecticut. AMUSA is in the process of organizing and implementing a virtual ambassador museum. This facility will be a tribute not just to the ambassadors, but also their families, experiences, and the millions of lives that have been affected by them. 
Its goal is to correct a stereotypical idea that large donors are the people who are selected as ambassadors of the United States and the notion that some in the State Department make a career out of being an ambassador. To learn more about the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, go online to amusa.info. That's, a, uh, that's amusa.info. Call 203-347-4604. Or you can also write to P.O. Box 5002, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06831. You know, the name Rockefeller is known throughout America. It is one that is synonymous with wealth and with success. Did you know that William Rockefeller, who in his time was one of the world's richest men, lived here in Greenwich, Connecticut? Well, it's true. I have an article uh, that was published just after his um, his death in uh, 1922, um, and it was published in the Greenwich News and Graphic on June 30th of 1922. So sit back and relax. William Rockefeller, who died last Saturday at his home in Tarrytown, New York, aged 81, was a brother of John D. Rockefeller and reputed one of the richest men in the world. His sons, Percy A. and William G. Rockefeller, own and occupy large estates on Lake Avenue, Greenwich. Mr. Rockefeller resided in Greenwich about 47 years ago, owning the present Wallen Estate on East Putnam Avenue and known as One Elm. Quote unquote. Many messages of sympathy were received at the home of his two sons here on Sunday and earlier this week. For many years, Mr. Rockefeller had been the active man in the Standard Oil Company and was one of the board of directors. He was also a director of the New York Central Railroad and by his election to succeed the late Cornelius Vanderbilt, the greatest combination of railroad industries was made. He was a president of the Lincoln National Bank and a director of the Columbia Bank, being succeeded by his son, William G. Rockefeller. Also, a director in the Mechanics National Bank, being succeeded by his son, Percy A. Rockefeller. He owned the old Aspinwall Place near Tarrytown, which he bought in 1887 for $150,000. It contained about 790 acres. He made some improvements in the place, and the assessors taxed it at $2,189,000. He took the case to the courts, and after a long and bitter fight, won the case and succeeded in reducing his assessment so that he paid taxes on $343,775. His town home was at the corner of 54th Street and 5th Avenue, another residence at 12th, 12 East 55th Street, and a cottage at Jekyll Island near Brunswick, Georgia. He was a trustee and director. Let's see, where was that? Oh, yes. Many corporations and made a gift of $100,000 to Wellesley College and another gift of $100,000 to the New Park Avenue Baptist Church. He was a member of the Metropolitan Union League, New York Yacht, Writing, and other clubs. In 1864, Mr. Rockefeller married Miss Elmira Geraldine Goodsell. Their children who are living are William G. Rockefeller, who married Miss Elsie Stillman, Emma Rockefeller, who married Dr. David Hunter McAlpin, Percy Avery Rockefeller, who married Miss Isabel G. Stillman, and Ethel Geraldine Rockefeller, who married Marcellus H. Dodge. Mrs. William Rockefeller died on January 17, 1920. Mr. Rockefeller first came to Greenwich in the summer of 1875 and for a year occupied the late Robert Meade's residence. In 1876, he built a large mansion on East Putnam Avenue, the tower of which was 120 feet in height. This place was later sold to the late L.V. Harkness, who, after making it his home for several years, had the house torn down. The property was then sold to Edwin H. Mulford, and a few years ago, Mrs. 
Natalie, yeah, Natalie G. Wallen, wife of George S. Wallen, purchased the property, which she now occupies, a handsome residence being erected on the site. Now, where is that site today? I'm not sure, but someone told me that the location of that uh, place was in the area where uh, Whole Foods is on East Putnam Avenue. Now, if you have some information about this, I'd love to hear from you. And you know that you can contact me anytime by email at Greenwich, a town for all seasons at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Well, what kind of a show would it be if we didn't touch upon crimes and misdemeanors? That's right. This is the <laughs> part of the show where we talk about how things were not all that genteel and perfect back in um, in days of yore. This particular, uh, well, I have two actually today. One of them is from the Greenwich News uh, dated uh, July 10, 1908. Uh, daring burglaries. Well, if you're going to be in Greenwich, you might as well do it that way. Two houses entered in the past week and valuable silver taken. Two daring burglaries have been committed in the town during the past week. One was that of the Cup residence in Belhaven, occupied by Edward D. Farrell, a retired New York real estate broker. From this house, there was taken more than $5,000 worth of solid silver. The burglars made their entrance through a cellar window, which they pried open. The break was made sometime between half past 12 at night, when the family retired, and 7 in the morning, when the servants rose. The marauders stopped to lunch from the ice chest and uh, to dispose of 10 bottles of beer and two bottles of wine. The home of E.C. Puncher of Coscob was entered the following night and $200 worth of solid silver taken. The entrance was made here through an open cellar door. In both cases, the burglar is disdained to take plated where and what they found they left scattered around. A significant fact was that both houses were outside the protection of the borough police. Not a break has been made within the borough police limits for nearly a year. Officer Fitzroy bested Depot Pest in a fight. This comes from actually July 10, 1914, and it goes as follows. Policeman Robert Fitzroy has been warmly commended by the merchants on Railroad Avenue in vicinity for having gotten rid of William H. Roberts, a common drunk and pest to businessmen of that locality. He had been annoying both the merchants and others by panhandling and spending the money thus secured on intoxicating liquor. Last year, Roberts, having been brought to the borough court repeatedly, had a heavy sentence put over him by Judge Burns and given his preference of serving it or leaving the town. Roberts chose the latter and remained away for some time. When the change came in the local borough court, Roberts seemed to think that it was safe for him to return, and he has been rather conspicuous ever since. Officer Fitzroy was told by Captain Talbot to pick him up if he persisted in annoying Railroad Avenue merchants and have him brought to the police station. Fitzroy went after Roberts. He found him at the corner of Railroad Avenue and Mason Street. Roberts refused to move on. The officer, after acquainting him of his intention of making him move, touched him on the shoulder. Roberts made a grab for a bar of iron, and failing to secure it, he grabbed hold of the officer. Fitzroy had him down on the ground in a minute, and with his little blackjack, taught Roberts a lesson which he will probably not soon forget, I'll bet. Roberts pled for mercy, and... Uh, let's see, agreed to walk up, uh, walk to the lockup without having handcuffs on. On the way there, he begged for mercy. When brought into the borough court, Judge Ferris, knowing his previous reputation, made a 30-day sentence for breach of the peace and intoxication and a three-month sentence and costs for resisting an officer. He suspended the 30-day sentence so that when Roberts gets out of jail, 101 days hence, there will be a sentence hanging over his head sufficient to cause him to either stay out of Greenwich or, if he comes to Greenwich, to behave himself. My friends, I'd like to invite you on behalf of the Greenwich Historical Society to be a part of and to partake in its many programs now under the 
um, discover Greenwich creating a sense of place. Join the Greenwich Historical Society as it celebrates its 90th anniversary with a dynamic series of programs and events that promote a sense of place, spark dialogue, and inspire meaningful connections across our diverse community. Now, for information, or you can register for those programs and events, please visit greenwichhistory.org forward slash discover dash Greenwich. Let me tell you what some of these things are. This is really quite wonderful. Uh, on July 9th, uh, that's a Saturday from 1 to 3 p.m., uh, you can do a walking tour with uh, Susie Baker over at Greenwich Point. That's on Saturday, July 9th from 1 to 3 p.m. Uh, let's see. What else do we have here? Ah, let's see. Um, let's see. There's going to be a scavenger hunt uh, on Sunday, July 17th. 10 a.m. to 4 p.m., and that will be, I assume, at the Greenwich Historical Society campus. What else do we have here? Um, let's see. Oh, yes, Picnic in the Park series with Happiness is Catering, Bruce Park. Uh, that would be on Sunday, August 14th at the Montgomery Pinetum. That's going to be Sunday, August 21st, and at Biddy Park, Sunday, August 28th. Also, um, at, there's going to be a mixology class on Thursday, June 23rd. That's coming up really soon from 6.30 to 8 p.m. Don't forget the Tavern Garden Markets. We talked about those uh, before, but we have them coming up in July on the 13th and the July 17th. Don't forget about that. Oh, and yes, the music on the Great Lawn. I've been to these. These are a lot of fun. I urge you, please, please, please to um, to go. There was one, in fact, uh, held yesterday. The uh, The Sun Kings uh, made an appearance. Billy and the Showmen will be making an appearance uh, at the uh, Music on the Great Lawn at the Greenwich Historical Society on June 30th and on July 14th. King's Highway will be appearing, and then on July 28th, Suburban Chaos. This is presented by the First Bank of Greenwich, for which we are very, very, very grateful. And also, before I go, let me just mention this, because July is coming really, really fast. The Art and History Camp 2022, that is going to be from July 11th to the 29th. Um, kids learn important skills while exploring Connecticut's colonial history and the works of the Coscop Art Colony through interactive games, crafts, and hands-on fun. It's great for the kids, everybody, so please get them enrolled. Um, you can learn more at greenwichhistory.org forward slash art dash and dash history dash camp. And to find out more about all this, simply go to greenwichhistory.org. You can also call the Greenwich Historical Society at area code 203-869-6899. Again, that's area code 203-869-6899. You know, I'm sure at some time in your life you have heard the old phrase, it's it's, how do I put this? Um, we're going to save the best for last. And um, this is something that I'm going to categorize under uh, odds and ends. I think that's what I would uh, put it. Uh, this is something that um, I found. It's dated April 24, 1914. And um, the, uh, well, I'm just going to read it to you. And then you can think about it. And if you'd like to write to me about this at GreenwichTownForAllSeasons at gmail.com, by golly, I hope you do. All right, here we go. The headline on this is Seen on the Avenue. Of course, the avenue we're referring to here is Greenwich. It goes as follows. It is quite a common occurrence to meet a woman carrying a snapping French poodle tucked under her arm on her way up or down Greenwich Avenue. But since the time of carrying babies in that manner has gone out of style, you never see any other sort of an animal in just that position on the public streets. At least I never have until one day this week when I almost bumped into a sweet little old Irish granny with a knitted cap tied under her wrinkled chin and a short black cape over her stooped shoulders, which flared back with the wind and disclosed a duck, a real quacking duck, which she held under her left arm. That poor duck looked so queer, poking his head out all of a flutter whenever an automobile or Charlie passed. I just wonder what he thought 
of this up-to-date town of ours. And with that said, I thank you for tuning in to the 17th of June, year 2022 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast, hosted by me, Jeffrey Bingham Mead, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. Founded on July 18, 1640, Greenwich is one of America's most interesting and extraordinary communities. You and your Greenwich stories are a part of our history, and we are glad to have you. Now, the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show uh, podcast is made possible by Peter F. Alexander, landscape architect of Site Design Associates, the Long Island Sound Institute, the Ambassador Museum, United States of America, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Now, you can always contact me. You know, uh, did you know that you could? Well, now you do, in case you didn't. Email is probably the best, so my recommendation is Greenwich A Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Again, that's Greenwich A Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. That's one word, by the way. Learn more about the show and listen to past shows by going to Greenwich A Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Now, both the show and I are on Facebook and uh, Twitter. I post uh, the uh, links to the shows there as well. And you can also contact me through those uh, platforms. Speaking of Facebook, look for and join any of a number of Greenwich, Connecticut groups. These uh, groups include, you know you're from Greenwich if, images of Greenwich, Connecticut, Greenwich Connections, Byram Neighborhood Association, Friends of Byram Park, and to our neighbors over in Westchester County, the Portchester New York Historical Archive. And there's more if you do a search, I suppose. All right, well, our next show is scheduled for Friday, the 24th of June, 2022. <laughs> and I'm still trying to picture this woman walking down Greenwich Avenue in 1914 with a with a duck under her cape. I don't know. Well, whatever. Anyway, um, listen, uh, while I think of it, um, we are going to be doing a countdown to uh, to the July 4 holiday. I've got some interesting things to share with you about how uh, the 4th of July Independence Day was uh, celebrated uh, here in Greenwich, Connecticut. So please be sure to, uh, to tune in. By all means, go out there, enjoy your weekend. You deserve it. And uh, I and I really look forward to, uh, to uh, being with you once again. So take good care, and I'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye now.